0: Savior's God I for me because to his pain for me to him to death pursue and how can you be seated. Well I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 we're looking at one verse again one brief verse verse 14. We'll also be jumping around throughout the Old and New Testament, but I will let you know when we do that. This is an important commandment. Uh, I think a a cultural reformation would, would take place if we began to take the seventh commandment seriously in this nation. It's not it's not difficult to find illustrations. Of our radical need for re- renewal in this area. We could point to prominent figures in pretty much every sphere of society who have committed adultery. You could see the breakdown of the covenant of marriage, both in its biblical definition in this country as well as in it, simply its value for a secular nation. Many Calling for a a complete revision, an abolishing of these kinds of structures, including the family unit. So, one of the more obvious ways in which we see the, the problem is with the early indoctrination of children. Girls and boys are inundated with perversions of marital love through entertainment, through social media and even through the curriculum of public schools. At a younger and younger age, children are learning of these things, it seems. The latest example of this is the promotion of a movie called Cuties by Netflix. Any of you have heard more than you would care to hear about that film. And some have justified it because the director was trying to warn about the dangers of over-sexualizing children. And so she created a movie that exploited many children in the process of raising that awareness. That's the logic we have in this world. The outrage of so many Christians is encouraging, but we are rightly chastised for waiting this long to say something to do something and if we're not properly training our children at home we can be certain that they will be learning from whatever culture it is in which they are engrossed whether it be Netflix whether it be TikTok Instagram Facebook whatever other social media applications are out there that I don't know about they're almost all a danger in this area of course, I know the Lord can use these things for good, just like the internet, but we must be careful. We must not assume that our children have, have the ability to discern what is proper for them to watch. And unfortunately, this perversion is, is nothing new. Church records throughout history reveal sexual sin, problems in marriage to be one of the primary subjects of church discipline. In fact, it's, to the, it's in the 90% of the, church, of the uh, acts of discipline that relate to the home, relate to marriage and sexual sin. In his exposition on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote this in, in the late 17th century. He said, if the devil should come and carry away all that are guilty of bodily uncleanness in this nation, I fear more would be carried away than would be left behind. That's true. It was true then. It was true before his time. It's true of our time. This is a pervasive sin in our culture, even within the church. There's really nothing new under the sun, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes said. Chapter 1, verse 9. And so let's ask the Lord for his help before we read this verse. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you even for challenging messages like this that remind us of our sinfulness. Remind us of the temptations we experience regularly in this life. Lord, it ought to be a humbling thought. And as your word rebukes us, as your spirit convicts us, Lord, may we once again be pointed to the cross of Christ. Be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, help us not to jump to that verse too quickly. That we make light of our sin. Just to rightly consider these things to allow that conviction to settle in. And, but Lord, not to remain there. To confess our sin. To repent. To turn away from our sin by your spirit. And to trust in you once again. To allow the gospel to not only bring us comfort. But to motivate us to move forward toward new obedience in this area. Lord, purify our hearts, purify our homes, purify this church that we might rightly honor and glorify you. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Read with me Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is God's holy word. Well, it's been a month since we we took a a break from our study of the Ten Commandments, and so I want to begin by just summarizing where we've been. We began the series by laying out the three uses of the law, recognizing that the law, it's not just what you read on the surface, but there's implications for that, for all people reading it as well. Uh, The first and primary purpose is to serve as a mirror. It reveals to us our need for Jesus, our sinfulness before a holy God. Um, It also serves, though, as a muzzle upon sin in society, in culture. There's a use for the Ten Commandments to teach the world about the moral law of God so that they might recognize right from wrong. It's also written on their hearts, but this gives them the clarity with the the Ten Commandments of God's moral law. So it's a mirror, it's a muzzle, and then it's also a map. And the third use of the law is a map for believers to show their gratitude to God by living obediently by his spirit. And so before looking at the commandments individually, we emphasize the importance of the preface. That comes before God delineates the Ten Commandments to Moses. In verse 2, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That reminder is critical to keep in mind. The Ten Commandments were not given to humanity from this distant, detached God who just kind of set things in motion and then takes his hand off. No, we are rescued, in fact, by this God. He, he has come to rescue his people out of their slavery. And then in light of that rescue, to then give us a guide to recognize how we might Show him gratitude. So we must keep that context in mind. Whenever we study these Ten Commandments, lest we turn our own obedience into this work trying to justify ourselves before God, trying to earn peace with God, trying to earn favor. Only one was capable of earning that peace. Only one was capable of earning that favor, and it was his Son, whom God the Father sent. For us it was it was God's love in all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. they weren't competing with one another. Jesus didn't have to have to wrestle with the Father in order to earn that love. it was all of their desire it was it was God's single purpose and desire to send the Son to redeem us and so as we began to look at each commandment. Individually, we noted that the first four commandments focus on our relationship to God, and then the latter six deal with our relationship with one another. So, of course, both categories overlap to a degree. It's not as if, as we're talking about the first four commandments, it has nothing to do with our relationship to others or our neighbor, and as we look at verse uh, commandments 5 through 10, that they have nothing to do with God. Of course, there, there's an overlap there, but To a large degree, the focus is upon our relationship with God in commandments 1 through 4. and commandments 5 through 10, is our relationship with our neighbor, which includes everyone. And so in the first commandment, we're called to worship the one true God. We learn about who we are to worship. In the second commandment, we're forbidden from manufacturing our own means of worshiping that God. So we learn who to worship and we learn how to worship in the first two commandments. Third, we're forbidden from misusing God's name. Right? We're, we're called to honor his name, to not dishonor it. And then the fourth commandment concludes with this, uh, this section with a positive command to honor the Lord's day. It speaks of the timing of worship. So again, all of those focus our thoughts upon our relationship with God. And then we transition to our relationship with our neighbors in the 5th through 10th commandment, where we we spent two weeks on the 5th commandment and then two weeks again on the 6th commandment. The 5th commandment deals with honoring our parents. And so we spent a week talking about that relationship between the child and the parent, the critical importance of the family unit. But then there was also implications to our relationship with other authority figures that God has placed over us and uses that same language of honoring them as a child would a father. The sixth commandment, though, teaches us not to murder. And again, there's implications for that. It's not just the physical act of murder, but it's also the hatred within our hearts toward others. It implies that that hatred itself is a form of transgress, transgressing God's will in the sixth commandment. And so the language on the surface of each commandment bears many implications. And you can go into great detail, especially as you explore the rest of God's word, to understand how we might interpret uh, uh, that commandment throughout scripture, how it's been taught and portrayed And so we'll see the same thing this morning as we look at the seventh commandment which forbids adultery. As we've done in the past we'll break it into two sermons. Uh, We'll focus on the positive aspect of the commandment this morning and then next week we'll look at the negative aspect. And if you're new here you'll learn quickly that I have a I do a terrible job of predicting how long I'll be in a sermon series. Um, and so even in my preparation for this sermon, I thought I would get through the entire Seventh Commandment in one week, but your outline shows that. In fact, this will become the, the title of, of this week's sermon and next week's sermon. So if you want to fill in your outline, I'll give them to you now. The first point is the preservation <clears throat> of love. And the second point is the perversion of love, the preservation of love and the perversion of love. So again, we're just going to look at the preservation of love this morning. God has has given us this gift of marriage, but our sinfulness has corrupted that good gift. And so we begin by considering the implication of do not commit adultery is that you that God honors marriage, that he commends healthy marriage. Christian marriage that's the positive implication of the seventh commandment so let's begin with that commendation of marital love in order to understand the significance of adultery we must first recognize the value that God has placed on the covenant of marriage marriage is a creation ordinance Genesis 224 so it's not a redemptive ordinance And that's important to know because it's for the world. It's for humanity. Unbelievers benefit from the covenant of marriage. They benefit when they partake in that covenant, when they commit to one another in that same way, even if they don't have all of the parameters that a Christian marriage should have. God has blessed this covenant union loving marital union and so we're intricately designed to have a partner with whom we could experience life together and the intimacy that's shared within a marriage is meant to provide joy and support throughout our adult lives and that uh, that means we shouldn't be prudish about the blessings and benefits of marriage of the marital love that is enjoyed the union that takes place that one flesh union but we should be clear in our explanation that God's design for sexual experience is to occur within the context of marriage. No matter who you are. All right, Christian or, or unbeliever, that blessing comes within that proper context, within its design. And so before we get too far, we need to ensure that we do have a proper definition of marriage. Again... It's not wrong for the church to insist on a proper definition of marriage that the culture would follow. This isn't trying to intermingle church and state here. This is simply speaking the truth in love. Recognizing that marriage is between, and it's an exclusive relationship, between one man and one woman. Wherein the two become one flesh being unified physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. It's intended to last for life. And so the legal codes of our nation do not reflect what Scripture clearly teaches. We may not expect it to, but we should insist on this proper definition. Marriage is, is meant to, to bless our whole being. Notice this definition, by the way, comes from the Reformation Study Bible. If you some of you follow along in the Reformation Study Bible, I just pulled that definition right out of it from this passage. Marriage is, is meant to bless our whole being physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. And so it's viewed as a duty for those who are not called to be single, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7.2. That's how the catechism defines this this command. It it speaks of the duties and then the sins that are forbidden. The duties required, the sins forbidden. Well, if you're not called to be single, then the duty required is marriage, Christian marriage. And so in making us male and female, God also created us to fill certain roles within marriage. We complement one another. And the way God made us. Now, at the most basic level, that involves procreation. That's not to say that the only purpose of marriage is to have children, but that is a purpose in God's design, that for married couples to have children, to go forth and multiply, to bear fruit. God works through the family unit, so he blesses the family unit. Now, we could spend weeks unpacking all of these things, and, and it would be good for us to do that. Because it's all wrapped up in, in this, this covenant of marriage, which ultimately is a reflection of the greatest, it's the, it's the greatest earthly expression of a covenantal relationship with God. And that's what marriage is to point to. Christ's love for his bride. God has promised to place his loving kindness upon his redeemed bride. And so in light of his commitment to us, we respond in love and obedience. And this commitment on God's behalf is so strong, it's so important that when we are faithless, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy two thirteen, when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Again, these promises should be so precious to us and our own marriages should remind us as we point forward to that covenant faithfulness of God. This is why it is so important that we treat fidelity in marriage crucial. As a creation ordinance, this one flesh blessing is offered to all humanity, unbelievers, experience many benefits from marriage. In fact, marriage is not to be dissolved even if one partner is an unbeliever. You would think that if there's any justification for the use of that irreconcilable differences, it's when your your religions differ. But even in the early church, Paul forbid, Jesus forbid divorce. Even when a partner is an unbeliever, that unequal union isn't ideal. And this isn't an excuse to date an unbeliever in the hopes that they'll become believers later. No, you're not to be unequally yoked, if you can help it, prior to marriage. But once you're married, the marriage covenant takes precedence. And the blessing is still upon you as you faithfully persevere through trials and challenges of an unequal relationship a Christian is not free to leave a spouse simply due to unbelief and so this shows the transcendent value of marriage for the world the blessings of, of marriage however are corrupted by the world right? if they pursue those blessings outside of the context of marriage that blessing does not apply a sexual activity outside of marriage weakens the benefits. Of course, there's still some carnal enjoyment in that, but it, it weakens the blessing. It becomes empty. Apart from participating in God's design. And so in a, in a sense, the blessing can become a curse, as we oftentimes speak about in taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The blessing of marital union And become a curse when it's pursued outside of that marital commitment. On the other hand, the marital commitment cannot be manufactured. And and in fact, Calvin and other reformers got into trouble. Or at least chastised because they, they spoke against the idea of arranging marriages. As if you could manufacture that covenantal love. That intimate love that is to represent God's love for his people. It's not something that you can just play chess with, that you can make happen. That intimate connection should be present on some level. Now, I can grow over time someone that you did not find attractive, maybe in the beginning of a relationship, there can grow an attraction later on. That, of course, happens. But without that attraction, I would question whether this is the right relationship to pursue marriage right this is the language in, in that Paul uses is that it is better to get married than to burn with lust there's a concern for those who are waiting to get married that they will burn that they will desire it that they'll be tempted again to pursue it even before marriage So Paul would say it's better to get married than to prolong that lustful state of waiting. But to be honest, if if lust isn't even a problem for both parties, and I mean both parties, desiring one another, that might be a bigger indication that that there's not an appropriate level of, of love, that that's lacking. Most likely there's some perversion of God's ideal at work in that kind of relationship. And so if marriage is such a tremendous blessing, it is worth preserving. And just as the the blessing of marriage is holistic, it affects us spiritually, physically, emotionally. The preservation of our chastity is to be holistic. It's not something we just think about as a physical act. It's something we think about in our, uh, it's something we reflect upon and consider in our minds and in our hearts. Everyone, whether single or married, in every situation that they find themselves ought to consider whether they are protecting their own purity as well as the purity of those they are with. We're responsible in that way, not only for our own bodies, but for those around us. And so if adultery can be committed in the heart, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, then we must guard everything we think, say, and do. We must take care that what we see, what we hear, what we touch, promotes rather than distorts purity. And so first of all, think about that for the women and for the girls who are present It is important that you consider what you are wearing. Not presently, I'm just saying what you wear on a regular basis. Consider whether your clothing might cause a brother in Christ to stumble. Teach your kids the importance of modesty. Women should learn to focus on the beauty of their internal character. As Peter said, In 1 Peter 3 verses 3 and 4, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. If your internal beauty is more precious to God, it should be more precious to you. Men, you should be in accountable relationships with peers as well as those older than you, mentors in your life. You should not be above that or think that you've surpassed this stage where you'll be tempted. I think you need to take care in the way you approach that accountability, that it's gospel-oriented and not legalistic, not just a slap on the wrist every time you have a, a wayward glance or something like that. But there's the reminder, the constant reminder of the grace that's held out to us in the gospel. But we need to take this commandment seriously, men and women. We must seek to stay above reproach in the various spheres in which we are called, making daily contributions, if you're married, to your spouse. It's like a retirement plan, just those small contributions daily add up over time to build this fortress against the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That onslaught of temptation that we all face. However, the message of sexual purity it's relevant to everyone. You don't have to be married to, to make sense of this commandment. If the most intimate relationship is scorned, then every other relationship suffers a lack of fidelity. And for children, you are preparing yourselves as well. Unless God calls you to singleness, you are preparing yourselves to be the kind of spouse that God has called you to be. You're learning from your parents. You're learning from from others at church, from the mentors in your lives. And so the commandment is universally applicable because of its place in the moral law. Moral law is for everyone, but it also reflects a relationship that spans all of scripture, namely God's relationship with his covenant people. The Old Testament prophets frequently viewed Israel's idolatry in terms of adultery and whoredom. It speaks in crass language, you might think, as you're reading Hosea, as you're reading through Ezekiel. There were times I warned you when we were reading Ezekiel in conjunction with Revelation last year. Times I warned you to be prepared. Some of this is going to offend your ears. That's how seriously God takes this sin. And it should cause discomfort as we think about these things. God takes his covenant seriously. Therefore, the value of its earthly reflection should never be minimized. And the New Testament only deepens our understanding of the marriage bond where God sends his son to be the bridegroom who rescues his wayward and adulterous bride by offering his perfect righteousness, by taking her shame upon himself and dying, putting it to death on the cross, and in exchange offering his righteousness. Jesus came in fulfillment of God's covenantal promises and in perfect fulfillment of the moral law so marriage is seen in light of Christ's relationship with his bride the church and this is seen most clearly in Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 27 his instruction to husbands he says husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it Our love for our spouse is to be sacrificial. Paul goes on, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. This is the work of Christ, cleansing and washing his bride, the church, by his word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This is what a perfect marriage looks like. And all who have come to Christ by faith experience the blessings of God's covenant faithfulness. You can be assured that Christ is working by his spirit to cleanse and sanctify you. There's a sense in which he's already done that perfectly, setting you apart, setting you in the heavenlies even, positionally. And he is actively at work in you even now. And he will continue that work until we reach glory. So he is preparing you for the enjoyment of the great eternal wedding celebration. Most of us look forward to weddings, especially those of family or friends that we know more intimately. We love going to weddings and enjoying the wonderful food, the the fellowship, Witnessing the the covenant ceremony, the union before God and before man. We look forward to that. Well, the joy of that celebration, spiritually in heaven, that was set before Christ. And it's one of the reasons that motivated him to endure the excruciating pain of the cross on our behalf. According to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. At the cross, Christ poured out his sacrificial love for his bride. The fullness of his marital love and faithfulness was on display, so that on the cross, Christ proved that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He drank the dregs of, drank the, the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs, to the very bottom. And so it's in Christ. It's in his love for the church that we understand God's ideal for marriage. And although it will remain nothing more than a dim reflection, sexual purity in a Christian marriage reflects Christ's sacrificial fidelity to his bride. And so when we consider this commandment within that proper biblical context, We don't view it as some impossible burden, but a reflection of God's covenant faithfulness to us. It once again reminds us of his goodness and of his mercy and grace to call us to himself and to commit himself to be faithful even when we are faithless. And so we ought to be supremely interested in the preservation of that love. And as we'll look at next week, in the many ways in which we oftentimes pervert that love. And so let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon this time and for his blessing upon our marriages and upon our faithfulness to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word, uh, even in this short verse, points us back and forth and throughout your scriptures to this idea of a marriage covenant, or primarily this earthly marriage is simply a, a dim reflection of the love you have for your people the church that you redeemed through your son. But it's easy for us to focus on, on smaller things in our marriage, to, to get caught up in these small, minor details, and to even lose sight entirely of what the purpose of marriage is, as Paul teaches us, and to, to, to be a reflection of Christ's love for us. Lord, that love was sacrificial, that love was perfect, that love never wavers, that love forgives completely. And Lord, for many of us, a message like this can be, it can feel condemning certainly as we consider the perversions next week and the many ways in which we ourselves have perverted that marital love, the ways in which we've participated in that evil. Lord, we, we want to be rightly convicted for those things, but help us once again to look to this purpose Lord, the, of marriage, that covenant faithfulness that we see in Christ. And be reminded of his love for us, even when we ourselves are wayward. Even when we ourselves are, are like Gomer, idolatrous, uh, living idolatrous lives, giving, giving your gifts to others. Thanking the wrong person, as if our gifts came from them and not from you. So protect us. Bring us back to yourself. Restore to us, Lord, the love that you drew us to yourself by. And cause us to repent and to endeavor after new obedience. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand our hymn of response, as great as thy faithfulness.